on Textbooked. The way I was raised, you give back and you create, you make, you know, and you give to help others. That's what my mother told me. She said, you're here in the world to help others, to do good, to lift things up, to make it better. How historically unique is her story to what the Smithsonian has seen? The sort of historical significance of her collection as a whole is extremely unique. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. I'm producer Ellie Kerver Horner. This is the second episode in our series, Untextbooking the Museum Collections. This week, we're talking to someone whose story has been wrongly ignored by our history textbooks. But she's seeing her place preserved in part thanks to the work of a curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Who is this person? She must have accomplished something big. Honestly, something big doesn't even come close to describing her accomplishments. I mean, her work as a student activist really makes her a true inspiration for me as a young person also interested in social justice activism. And the impact of her time spent fighting for change can't really be put into words. But I I guess I could try? I bet. I'll start a timer. Wait, really? Yep. You have 60 seconds on the clock. Start. Her name is Irma Barbosa, and she currently lives in California. She joined the Brown Berets, a social justice organization fighting for Chicano and Mexican-American rights. She worked with the Black Panther Party and started a free breakfast program for her community in Sacramento. She slept on Cesar Chavez's mother's floor while advocating for farm workers' rights. She organized with the legendary Royal Chicano Air Force. She even used her art for activism to create murals, paintings, books, and founded a Chicano-led art collective. Plus, she raised two children as a single mother, all while navigating a successful career in government and corporate sectors. Nice. With 10 seconds to spare. And wow, that is a long resume. I know. There's just so much to say. And that's actually why we are telling her story across two episodes. Exactly. We couldn't possibly fit everything that this activist has accomplished in one episode. So subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. But back to this week's story. Irma Barbosa is now able to assert her place in history. Her collection is an important contribution that affirms the central role of Chicanas to U.S. history. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with her about her amazing life. And I got to speak with the Smithsonian curator who's facilitating the acquisition for the institution. My name is Veronica Mendez, and I am a curator uh, in the Division of Political History. What drew you specifically to her history? One of the questions that I always sort of ask is, you know, what sustains people within movements? She's been deeply involved, right, for most of her her lifetime in in, in these movements. And I, I was just, you know, I was just amazed about how much she has contributed to to the movement itself. And to a large extent, I am part of of the benefits um, that she sacrificed her life for. Um, And so for me, it was, you know, it was, you know, capturing her story, but also um, a sign of of commitment to honor the elders that have paved the way for a lot of us to be in the spaces in which we are, right? Like you said, you met her. She's such a wonderful human being. 
um, and she continues to give and, you know, through her knowledge. How historically unique is her story to what the Smithsonian has seen? The sort of historical significance of her collection as a whole is extremely unique. We're very humbled that she considered um, American history a space for her, not only her collection, but her her story to, to, to live. My name is Irma Lerma Barbosa. I am a Yaqui Mexican Indian, and my family comes from Sonora and Chihuahua. Going to a school with this background was kind of difficult. I didn't see myself, you know, like the other kids. Uh, I usually had holes in my shoes because there were five of us kids. I didn't have any money, even though my father had five jobs. There were five kids. He drove a truck on the weekend. He cleaned incinerators. We helped him clean parking lots at night, you know, and then when there was opportunity, we would go out to the fields and we would pick tomatoes or sort tomatoes. But I had a great love for school. Just, I love to go to school and learn. But I had a hard time because I was also kind of monolingual Spanish speaker. And when teachers uh, couldn't communicate with me, they didn't really have, you know, that heartfelt, you know, feeling for the struggle that I was going through, and more often than not, it would enrage them. And I would see furious teachers, you know. But I uh, eventually got the hang of it. When Irma graduated high school, her parents encouraged her to work full-time. But she saw a different vision for her life. She wanted to attend college. In order to make her vision reality, she had to keep working to fund her education. When she was 18, she worked on a tomato sorting machine, where she says she made friends with the older Mexican women who also worked there. It was these connections in the field that eventually led her to the Brown Berets. They invited me to uh, go with them to a club called the Cabana Club in North Sacramento. It was one of those nights at the Cabana Club I was uh, sitting in my miniskirt and drinking a drink, and I noticed a group of kids sitting in a big booth. They were all kind of dressed like in Boy Scout uniforms or something. <laughs> and uh, then one of them came over. It turned out to be Freddie Rodriguez, who was the president of the Brown Beret organization in Sacramento. And I thought he was just trying to hit on me. You know, we danced a little bit. And then he invited me to go to a meeting of the Brown Berets. And I entertained the thought. I met some of the other people there. There were only two or two girls, Jani Polendo and uh, Mariana Rivera. Um, and I met them and everybody was kind of a little standoffish. The Brown Berets came to her campus and recruited her to a meeting. And I showed up one. One day in my little yellow miniskirt and they were all dressed in pants and, you know, official looking stuff, you know, like brown shirts and stuff. And I walk in in my little yellow miniskirt and I know they looked at me sideways. The message of the brown berets reminded her of what she learned from her high school best friend, who was black. Irma saw how her best friend's family was so dedicated to the black community she saw the Brown Berets sharing similar messages to feel proud of where you're from. They were talking about 
Be proud of yourself. Be proud of your culture. We're not invisible. You know, so many of our young men were dying in Vietnam at that time. And it was like an invisible thing. But I felt like I was being called to show up. So I joined the Brown Berets. I want to take a step back and understand the broader context of what was going on at this point in history. Broadly, her her life really helps us document and understand some of the most important um, Chicano-Chicana youth organizations of the late 1960s, early 1970s, and all the way up to the 80s, because, you know, her work never really ended. So, you know, the 1960s and the 1970s are like critical uh, points for the Mexican-American civil rights movement. Um, This is just a short snapshot into the long history of sort of political activism. But during this time, this is sort of the first time in which Mexican-American, Puerto Rican, African-American, Native American, Asian-American youth really took upon themselves to have a more direct voice in um, sort of ushering political change within their communities, right? Um, For the Chicanos and Chicana youth, uh, this meant sort of like distancing themselves from previous political actions of the older generation that really stressed whiteness as a way to um, integrate into mainstream society. And now you have these youth that are like, ah, eh, we don't want to do that. Um, we are developing our own sort of new political and cultural consciousness that is um, in conversation, but also very distinct. And so this is sort of the first time that we see sort of such a mass mobilization of, of, of youth. Um, and Irma is part of this part of this large movement. Um, you know, she's she started sort of her political activism in Sacramento, California. And so her participation in the Brown Berets in Sacramento allows us to sort of map how youth become involved locally in a national movement. Um, Again, lacking sort of like the real-time social media aspect of things. And this is one of the things that, well, one of the many tenants that the Chicano movement was also fighting for greater access to um, higher education, not only for people of color, but also for working class folks. Um, and so, she, you know, she also helps us locate a particular historical moment where you have ethnic minorities entering college at a much higher rates than before. She also, um, you know, was in conversation with the Black Panther movement in Sacramento, you know, and that allows us to sort of also uncover how these moments of solidarity were forged. Although, you know, there's there are tensions within these movements, but they're also, you know, building bridges of solidarity. Veronica said the Brown Berets and the Black Panthers built bridges of solidarity. What did that look like? Well, I actually have a perfect example for you. The Black Panther Party organized free breakfast programs that fed tens of thousands of youth across the country, including Irma's hometown of Sacramento. Well, Irma recognized the importance of this program, so she took it upon herself to organize a free breakfast program put on by the Brown Berets, inspired by the Black Panthers. My friend Mariana and the Brown Berets uh, and I went to see the president of the Black Panther organization in Sacramento, and they had a free breakfast program at this Presbyterian church. And he kind of saw us as kind of equals, you know, come like we were a, an organization, the Brown Berets to be respected, kind of like the Black Panther organization that we were trying to help our people. So he set it up for us to tour and meet the originators of the free breakfast program in Oakland. 
And so Mariana and I went there and we met the Panthers and went through their study session. I was given a little red book and uh, they showed us the free breakfast uh, program and how they were working it. And we came back to Sacramento and I worked at the Washington Neighborhood Center in Midtown um, helping with the tutoring program. And I noticed that a lot of these kids didn't have you know, a lot of things that they needed. And even their parents, you know, didn't have everything that they needed. And so I talked to the um, the director of the Washington Neighborhood Center and they had a kitchen that qualified. And uh, I presented a proposal for a free breakfast program and they said they would lend their kitchen to it. And then I went back to Sac State so that college-age kids could come to the Washington Neighborhood Center and cook and serve. That's amazing. And yeah, that really, that really took off, you know, because everybody wanted to be part of it. That's incredible. I know. The coolest part is that part of her history with the Brown Berets will be preserved in the Smithsonian collection. I'll let Veronica explain. One of the things that we oftentimes hear in histories for civil rights is sort of how organizations work across um, political movements, right, to build solidarity. But one of the questions as a museum worker is like, how do you capture that through an object? And when I was talking to Irma, she was saying, yeah, you know, when we were thinking about creating a breakfast program to serve the um, Mexican Latino kids in the, in the community, we looked to the, the Black Panthers that had already initiated the breakfast program. The Black Panthers inspired Irma to start a breakfast program with the Brown Berets. And, you know, for the Black Panthers, Mao's Little Red Book is very important and central to their um, political consciousness raising project. Um, and, you know, they studied it, they disseminated it, and they also sold it. Um, and so when she met with them, in addition to sort of touring the breakfast program, the little uh, red book was something that they gifted to her. And so, you know, the symbolism of that gifting, um, you know, tells us a much larger story, both of Irma's involvement in the community, of Irma's and, you know, um, building solidarity with the Black Panthers. I even if it was for like a small little moment in time, you know, like a one-time meeting, but also it allows us to tell a much larger story about the African-American civil rights movement. You know, why is it that, you know, some organizations didn't sort of work together, but they worked alongside each other, right? It allows us to tell the stories about, like, why did the Mexican-American civil rights movement follow a different trajectory, did a different political actions, um, but also, you know, what are some of the moments in which these political actions intersected with other political um, actions at the time? Irma also created a flag for the Sacramento chapter of the Brown Berets. One of my favorites um, is the Brown Beret flag. When we think of movements um, and we think about the Brown Berets, one of their missions was to serve, protect, and observe. And they basically provided protection to, um, you know, Mexican and Mexican-American communities as they were holding gatherings to prevent them both from being harassed, um, mainly by the police. And so she took it upon herself to... Um, to create a symbol that one united the Sacramento chapter to this larger movement of the Brown Berets. But also if you see the flag, it says, um, you know, this is, it has Sacramento. So making a presence that this is the Sacramento chapter. 
And paired with that flag, um, there is a very powerful image that she also donated of a community event in which the Brambury spoke. Um, and in that image, um, there is, you know, the men of the Brambury's are holding the flag, but in the back and behind the flag, there is a woman, which I can't recall her name, but she basically um, got up on a ladder and, you know, she's kind of peeking over the flag. And that's very symbolic about sort of women's presence in some of these organizations. This woman literally had to go get a, a ladder, you know, climb up the ladder and, you know, stand behind um, the flag to be able to be seen. So sometimes we don't see women's labor um but in this case, this woman made it a point for her to be sort of seen as part of, of this organization. But the, the sort of the symbolism of the flag is that, you know, women were finding ways to clean space within these organizations and see their both physical and labor rendered visible. Um, and this image really captures that very symbolically. Um, and the flag, again, you know, it represents the collective. Um, but when you start diving deeper into the flag, who made the flag? How was the flag made? You start learning that, you know, it was Irma who sewed this flag by hand. And so she was telling me that her mother, you know, taught her how to sew. Um, and I believe she used her mother's sewing machine to sew this flag. So again, it's like these very like, you know, intimate familial knowledges that get passed down and are also embedded in sort of political actions. So I thought that was, it, it, it's super powerful. She was also telling me how cheap it was to make it. But again, its historical significance is unmeasurable. This summer, I was actually able to see this flag in person. And I knew I wanted to ask Irma, what is the story behind it? The way I was raised, you give back and you create, you make, you know, and you give to help others. That's what my mother told me. She said, you're here in the world to help others to do good, to lift things up, to make it better. You know, I had nothing from a poor family and I moved out because I didn't want to go to work for the railroad. And I went to go live with uh, a lady that I met on the tomato sorting machine. And so all I had were my skills. My mother taught me everything she knew. I could make a dress just using a needle. I could cut my own pattern. I could sew. I used to sew all my sister's dresses for like Easter and stuff. And so I noticed that the brown berets were almost, they were almost gang-like in their attitudes. You know, it's like, whoa, what's happening on the East side? And I thought there's not enough focus on what wonderful thing we have here we shouldn't be watching what they're doing. We should be, you know, doing something here for our own people. And so to lift up their spirits, I didn't have much money, and but they had a big roll of brown flannel. And so I bought enough to make a flag and some gold, you know, to make all of the details. And then I took it home and drew it out and cut the pieces and sewed them on. And I brought it to the guys. And then when there was a parade, we were able to hold up our flag and hold up our heads and stand together. Wow. We would take the flag and we would put it up outside so that, you know, protected by not ADT, by brown berets. It's, it's amazing how, like, 
objects can hold so much. Symbols. Right. It has power and it lends you, you know, the strength. Yeah. It's like creates light. You know, whatever you do, you know, make sure it opens hearts and creates light. So then it frees their hearts so that they can stand up and say, she can do it. I can do it. She's not afraid. I'm not afraid. While Irma attended Sacramento State University, she joined the Royal Chicano Air Force, an activist-led arts collective. I had also been recruited into an organization called the Royal Chicano Air Force. At that point, it was called the Revolutionary Chicano Art Front. It was while I was in school. And uh, I love art. I loved art growing up. It was like what fed me, what saved my soul. The guys, there were all men in the RCAF, the Royal Chicano Air Force. I was the only girl. Because they were so chauvinistic, you know, but it didn't bother me because I was going to do what I was going to do. I was going to paint. I was going to demonstrate. I was going to help people, you know, and I kind of brought that flavor into this art group. And they had, they were like trying to be like romantic heroes, you know, and they pretended a lot that they were like military. They would drive around in Jeeps and and stuff, but they were artists. (laughs) Basically, they were artists and they worked with the farm workers movement mostly. Yeah, I've slept on Cesar Chavez's mother's kitchen floor, you know. Yeah, you know, we would go there and we would help them and we would demonstrate in the fields and we would hold up the the signs that we would make. Specific to the experiences you mentioned, um, what was it like being a, a woman in these organizations like the Brown Berets, the Royal Chicano Air Force, United Farm Workers? I'm curious. I had to stop being a woman. I could not be a woman. I had to wear clothes that were not, you know, what other girls wore. I had to wear combat boots. I had to wear um, um, Army Navy kind of uh, clothes, you know, that did not reveal my body. And and, uh, I became what they called me a heavy. Like the people that were leaders in the movement were called heavies. It's because you're powerful. Like you're the spokesperson, you're the leader. So I have very few women heavies. So I was a heavy and all of the women in the organization, everybody, you know, these are Chicanos, Mexican-Americans as a role, right? The man's the boss, they're the cooks, he's their hero, all of that. Well, I didn't fit in there. I was walking like a man with the men and uh, I didn't need anyone to give me permission. So my womanliness was removed from me by the other women. I was not treated like a woman. I was not invited to be part of their womanly gatherings to prepare for organizations. I was working on security and I was working on who's going to speak and, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, even with the men, you know, uh, they knew they couldn't flirt with me (laughs) because they knew uh, how serious I was. I kind of scared them a little bit. 
even the professors, there were two professors that were head of the Royal Chicano Air Force, Jose Montoya and Esteban Villa. They were being very mistreated by the other art teachers at Sac State, right? And so Jose came to me. He took me for a ride in his truck one night. And he told me that I would be better off if I didn't dress like a man. You know, I should probably dress like a girl, wear some makeup, you know. <laughs> I was shocked. So it's like I was invisible, you know? I was like useful, valuable, powerful, but I wasn't a woman. And uh, I wasn't a man. <laughs> so that was what was really hard, you know, about being a girl and uh, doing the things that I did while I was in college. Years later, Irma says she was still being pushed out from the story of this organization. Well, um, I told you that the men were trying to erase me, but they were trying to lift themselves up and they were using all kinds of media. Well, they recruited a, an author to write a book about them. And the university press was backing it up. And so this author interviewed them all, took years to get them all interviewed. And she took her writings to the university press and the university press would not accept it. Said, you have neglected to interview Irma Barbosa. And then she couldn't get through to me. I mean, no one would give her my name. Finally, she was able to find me. And people were telling me, don't talk to her. Don't tell her anything, right? Because they had told stories that were fabricated about how the free breakfast program started and who the Royal Chicano Air Force was. And, but I had everything to back it up. I had all my transcripts from college that showed, you know, had a class made up, you know, for the breakfast program. And, and then she started looking at all of the other evidence that I had in my work and, and she included in her writing and she sent it off. And it resulted in the university press accepting it and publishing it, flying under the radar with the role. Royal Chicano Air Force. I've got a huge chapter in here that tells all about what I did. And it's an award-winning book. What did Veronica think about this, this pushback Irma received based on her gender? As you mentioned a little bit earlier, Irma played like a pretty big role in um, establishing and like just helping organize with the Royal Chicano Air Force. But she received a lot of pushback for her work arguably due to her gender. Um, like, even with the book, they kind of literally tried to write her out of the narrative. So what do you think is the power of museums like the Smithsonian to help reaffirm her place in history? So one of the things that I love about history is that um, you have a cacophony of voices that are part of movements, right? And so how do you create enough space for all these voices to be heard alongside each other, make sure that they're in conversations with one another? And like you said, um, you know, these organizations are, you know, united by a common goal and mission, but, you know, you also have a lot of tensions. And so that's what 
we strive to do at the museum is sort of amplify the the platform for all these voices to to be heard in their own voice. Um, in this case, in Irma's um, own lived experience, you know, making sure that we tell the story of the the different organizations that she uh, was part of, but making sure that her own individual lived experience also is part of that historical record. Yeah, no, and I, I, I think it's such a fascinating thing that museums uniquely have the power to do. Um, I, I don't know, like Chicana history is not something that I have spent time learning about in history class. I, especially growing up in the Midwest, it wasn't something that was talked about. Even, even just like student activism in general is not something that I have spent a lot of time being taught. And I'm sort of just curious on, I don't know how you feel about like what role can museums like the Smithsonian play in sharing the stories of those overlooked by our history classes and our history textbooks? Yeah, so that's really interesting, Ellie, because even though I grew up in the Southwest here in Texas, I also wasn't very um, well aware of these histories when I was going through, you know, K through 12. And it wasn't until I got to college that I started um, becoming inversed in my own history, which I'm like, why did it take so long? And so one of the most important things that I see as museums doing is sort of creating a very sort of like democratic access. In this case, as a public institution, I think it's a it's a way for um, our, our, our children, collectively speaking about children um, and adults in our communities to be able to reflect about their own place in history and about their own place in American history and how our, you know, our contributions have sort of amplified what it means to be um, an American, what it means to understand the complexities of U.S. history. It's something that I have been thinking about a lot recently because I was able to spend the summer uh, in D.C. and do a lot of work with the Smithsonian and just, I don't know, yeah, thinking about, like, how many people have access to the museum, how many people don't have access to the museum, mm-hmm. um, but just, like, how important it is that the history there, I think, is representative. I'm just curious, like, will her items ever be on display? Is she going to, I don't know, how how does that work at the Smithsonian? So as a curator, our, you know, one of our, um, one of our multitude of sort of commitments is to ensure that exhibitions reflect um, the diversity of our community's histories. Um, having said so, exhibitions are not the only space in which we amplify um, our collections. So we're actively always sort of proposing um, exhibitions around the collections that um, we have and we are acquiring. But in this case with Irma's, um, we have something in the work. So I always tell people that, you know, exhibitions are only one facet of the work that we do to amplify and disseminate our collections. What do you hope that people will learn from Irma's collection? I know you mentioned that you have a lot of interest in your work um, in looking into like what sustains political movements and what keeps people, go- it keeps people going. Um, and so I'm kind of just, I'm interested in like what you hope people will take away from her story. So, um, you, you know, Irma as an individual, as a human being, she's so inspiring. Um, so I really hope that her, her words really inspire people to do good for their community, whatever that looks like. Um, but I also in a larger sort of, um, 
perspective. You know, her story really allows us to better understand the Latina Latino experience in the United States, um, you know, um, allows us um, to understand the deep political actions um, that sort of ground us in history. Um, and I also think that um, it really allows us to understand sort of how Latinos and Latinas fit in these so, sort of like the U.S. social imaginary. Um, a lot, I think a lot of people still don't really understand who we are. Uh, the Latino Latina community is so diverse. Um, and so, you know, her story really allows us to um, have a conversation, not only with people that look like us, uh, but, you know, we're yet, you know, don't share the same sort of historical trajectories in relationship to the United States, but also to people that may not know anything about Latinos or Latinas in the United States um, and sort of see the commonalities and sort of like the shared humanity um, that we're all striving to, you know, make this world a better place. And what has that looked like? And, you know, what are some of the lessons that we can take forward? What has worked? What hasn't? Um, and I also think that there's a lot of stuff we can learn from our elders. Um, I think sometimes we forget that people were young at some point um, and they sort of struggled with the same sort of issues that we're struggling with, you know, being humbled about that, being humbled that we can, there's a lot of things we can learn from the past, both to push movements forward and make them better, um, but also um, taking into consideration strategies that stand the test of time. I think it's also what makes different formats of like his history education so important, right? Like oral histories is one of oh, the best ways yes. that we can like, yeah, and we can learn from people um, who literally lived through it and like made the history. And that's why I was so happy that I got to speak with Irma because um, I just, her her voice deserves to be heard um, as loudly as possible. So I, I just think it's, yeah, I think it's so amazing. One of the things that you just mentioned about the, the, you know, the power of the podcast, too, is to not only see people that look like you, but also sound like you, you know, like <laughs> there's something really empowering to be like, oh, that sounds like my Thea, you know, that you may not see her as somebody that's making um, an impact in history, but she really is, you know, like she could be someone's Thea, someone's mother, someone's sister, someone's, you know, daughter. And so seeing that, I it goes right along with what you said. It's it's life changing. One of the things that I found most interesting is how young Irma was while she was making such a huge impact. I asked her about what is so special about youth activism. Do you think there is something about you being a student that allowed you to get involved in all of these things? It's just such an amazing, like, I don't know, specific time of your life. Time. Time is so important. You have to do things on time. If you wait too long, to do those things that come from your heart, you'll be trapped. So at that age is the time that you have to free yourself, you know, enough to explore. Because um, time was passing for me. This is what I would say to the young people. I would say, use what you have. Use what's around you. If it's your friends, communicate and lift each other up and create from your heart and do it now and don't wait and don't let other people use your energy. You claim 
which you create and you lift it up. That's your baby. That will grow for you, you know, and it will open up a path for you so that um, you can elevate your soul. We can't lose our ability to create. You know, we can't lose our heart, you know, because children need us. They need us to tell them the truth so that they can grow up and, and work for good, you know, and have mercy on other human beings, not always be in competition, right? So that we can all be respected and we can all hold our head up. Doesn't matter if we come from the mountains of Mexico or the big city of LA. It doesn't matter. What matters is what's in your heart and how you show it, you know, in your life. Not be ashamed of yourself, you know. So, what? You have holes in your shoes. Your brain works, your heart works, and you can create. Wow. I mean, and I, I appreciate your words so much just because I think we're in a very specific moment, particularly I'm a college student right now. There's a lot going on on my campus um, with a lot of student activism that's receiving a lot of pushback um, from the school. And I just, I think it's so powerful to be able to have conversations. Yes. Unite and stand. Yes. No matter who you are, don't let anybody make you feel that you are not capable. You can do anything. You have the power, but you have to do it now. It's like being alive, right? You have to take care of your body. You can't tell your body, oh, I'll eat in five days. Don't worry about it. I'm busy. No, you have to eat on time so that your brain works. That's having respect for yourself, right? Yeah, and I I just, I appreciate also that we, like conversations like this can happen because I think there's so much that you have to share. How do you want people to, when they hear this maybe, or if they uh, get the chance to look at the items you donated, how would you want people to see kind of your legacy of activism or your story? Like, how do you want people, what do you want people to take away from it? I want them to see themselves. I want them to see their family. I want them to see, you know, other people who maybe are having a hard time or somewhere in there that see the possibilities. See the possibilities for them. Look for the best and then help them see it. It helps everybody. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Irma Lerma Barbosa for sharing her incredible story with us. Thanks to Smithsonian curator Veronica Mendez for helping us understand the broader Chicano history. We will share more of Irma's story in another episode. So stay tuned and follow the podcast. So Ellie, tell me, what was this experience like for you? And what sort of impact did this have? Um, she is the coolest person I've ever spoken to probably in my life. But what was so powerful about it is how she was able to do so much at a young age and, I don't know, kind of being able to 
think of how she's like sharing her wisdom in a very cross-generational sort of way. Like I'm 20 years old, I'm in college. And a lot of what she was doing was when she was 20 years old in college. And I just think it's so, I don't know, deeply inspirational to think about how much she was doing and how I can try and sort of take those values into what I'm doing myself. I love that. I love that. She's such an inspiration. How did talking to Irma change your thinking of student activism? What was so, I don't know, impactful to me was just how many parallels there are between what she was doing in the 1960s and 70s to what's going on, I don't know, in our world today with youth movements, whether that's people fighting for climate change reform or against systemic racism or speaking out against genocide. Like, there's so much that is going on with youth of our generation today that I think is so incredibly paralleled to what she was doing. And I think it kind of really shows that youth activism historically and now isn't something that can be overlooked. It's something that is a huge part of activist movements. And I just, I think her story is particularly, um, it exemplifies that really well. This is all about Irma, but also I'm curious about you and what do you think is something that that people our age should push for change today. I think one of the most important things that she did was engaging different mediums of activism, right? Like she wasn't just, I mean, she was doing everything that is really well known as forms of protest and activism, but she was really engaging with art. And I think that's something that I've been seeing more and more um, in youth movements today is really using art as a powerful tool for getting messages across. And I think that that is one of the things I would highlight from her story as something that can be used to create further change today. Follow on Textbooked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, write us a review. We love to know what you think of Untextbook. Learn more about Untextbooked at untextbooked.com. Sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, Every week, we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources designed for teachers and students. For behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at Untextbook. That's all for this episode of Untextbooked. I'm producer Ellie Kerverhorner. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernando Rain, and CeCe Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People, Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. Untextbooked. 